it's the right question to ask right now is in terms of how do we get people re-engaged to the work and i think it goes back to the why and it's old cliche but it really is one of the most powerful things we can do and i think the quickest way we can get to the why is find a way to talk to our patients find a way to get our families to really engage with our workforce in a meaningful way Healthcare has always been a challenging field. But with the trials the pandemic surfaced, vaccination politics, violence against healthcare workers, and the ultimate pervasive burnout that's plaguing our entire industry, it's really never been harder to be in healthcare. In a time when so many feel discouraged, how can we reignite our passion and our sense of purpose in healthcare to stay? I'm Rebecca Corin. And this is Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Our guest today is Dwight McBee, Executive Vice President of Clinical Health Equity and Chief Experience Officer at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals. Dwight's purpose was ingrained in him beginning in childhood as he cared for his younger sister who suffered from a chronic illness. This experience sparked his desire to pursue a role in healthcare, where he encourages meaningful connections with patients and families, and to really help caregivers reconnect with their why every day. As a young Black man in nursing school, Dwight didn't see a lot of people who looked like him. It was with the support from a mentor who recognized his potential and modeled strong leadership that helped Dwight climb to his current position and has also paved the way for him to inspire other young leaders along the way. Let's join the conversation to hear about Dwight's journey. Hello, Dwight. Thank you so much for being on Moments Move Us today. Thanks for having me. So thrilled for you to be here, especially joining us today from Philadelphia, my hometown. Oh, yeah. Brotherly love. Lots to say and do here in town, for sure. That's right. I know I am personally pretty excited. We've had the Eagles kick off. Sixers are starting. My Philly sports love affairs have begun. Yeah, it is. It's an ongoing love-hate thing, depending on the year, right? That's true. This is a love year. (laughs) We're in a love cycle. That's true. Admittedly, I was still in the love cycle when things weren't going as well, but it goes through and through. Anyway, I'm so happy for you to be here. Dwight, I'd love for us to kick off today's conversation and get to know you a little bit better and hear a bit about your journey. How did you get to this moment in time leading experience for Jefferson? Wow. It's hard to trace all of the steps. So I would say that right now I have the privilege of leading experience at Jefferson and Jefferson has experienced tremendous growth over the past few years. And we're now 18 hospitals in the region. And so I think just like anyone else, you never thought you'd be doing what you're doing. I really didn't come into this role and this kind of industry with a lot of intentionality happened along the way. I'm from South Jersey originally and just outside of Atlantic City. And growing up, I was always the person that kind of hung out and stayed behind with my younger sister. So there was, I had an older brother and a younger sister. My younger sister suffered from sickle cell anemia. Like any family that has a loved one with a chronic illness, I was the one that was hanging out all the time and always had a tendency to care and to just be there and be a support for my sister growing up along the way. My sister eventually passed away in 99, but that sort of led me into healthcare and led me into nursing. 
And throughout my nursing journey, which was pretty interesting and I'm a techie, and I found a niche in critical care where you had tubes and you had wires and you had monitors and you had all kinds of things going on. And really felt like that was it. I was doing meaningful work. I was taking great care of people. I had a chance to meet great families that are going through a tough time and be a support person to them. As time went on and as things got farther along in my career, opportunities opened up and there's lots of little moments along the way, but I was always willing to stay comfortable and stay in that space. And it was seeing other leaders and meeting other leaders that had me open my eyes to this world outside of what I knew in nursing at the bedside. And there's one leader in particular, she was the only African-American leader in our organization at the time. I was just like, wow, I have to meet her. I have to talk to her. I have to see how she got to where she was. She was always very able to do the job and execute. And it threw a lot of conversations that were small and then started to build over time. Got the chance to know her a little bit more. And meeting people like her, and her name is Sharice, by the way, and meeting people like Sharice sort of opened my eyes to this bigger world that's out there in leading in healthcare. It just so happened that there's lots of little things along the way that we can talk about. But for me, if to, to answer that question, I think it's meeting the right people along the way. Got exposed to this experienced leadership movement right at the beginning of the 2000s when HCAPS was just a policy that they were toying around with and grew up with that whole HCAPS movement. And so here I am now today leading in experience for 10 plus years. And throughout that process, a lot has changed. I've changed as a leader for sure. We can dig into some of the details there, but it's starting small and having the right people lead you along the way. It's really meaningful to me when you share about your sister and some of your experience there. My mom was the middle child of three girls and her youngest sister had pretty severe brain damage. And growing up in a family like that, my mom found herself, I think many times taking care of her sister, my, my aunt Laurie, and that informed who she is, not just what she did for work. And she ended up working with people with special needs and doing a lot of amazing things to help other people who are in similar situations. But I think it just shapes the way you see the world. I think you nailed it. Yeah, it does shape you, mold you and give you a skill set and an awareness and a perspective that is not necessarily common. I can tell you with my sister, being a young black male, nursing wasn't like top of mind, right? It wasn't just, it just wasn't commonplace. And in fact, in nursing school, there were no other black men in my nursing program. Obviously things have changed dramatically since then, but at the time I was an outlier, but spending that time with my sister, getting that level of comfort, like being there for someone in those moments of need, it was second nature. So you're so right in that some of these experiences we have growing up do mold us and do shape us for the future that we have now. I can tell you that it was still for me when I got into nursing and I would come across a sickle cell patient knowing that my sister passed away from it. It was always something that just amped up my care level. I was like, you're going to be great with me. I'm not going to miss a thing. You're going to, I'm going to anticipate every need. I'm going to over communicate. So it's definitely the things that we experienced growing up and those things that led us into our careers and for, for us in healthcare, the things that are strong purpose and our why they don't go away. And it leads us into those greater roles that we take on. So definitely was the case for me. And I imagine like being in this role that you're in now, I'm sure your sort of sister's legacy continues. Oh my gosh. 
There's a lot of research that is promising in terms of looking to end sickle cell anemia. They're studying CRISPR-Cas9 technologies, gene editing essentially, but they're able to really stop the root cause of sickle cell. I'm a huge supporter, advocate. Obviously, when we have sickle cell patients, I'm all over their case to make sure they're getting the care that they need, knowing that sickle cell patients are very misunderstood. A lot of them come in with chronic pain. They have increasing tolerance to certain pain medications, and so they can ease labeled as drug seekers. And I'm there to dispel that myth very quickly. And unfortunately, I have to do that often because it's just a bad combination of things that come together. And unless we're really hyper-focused on the full picture of our patients, we can fall into that trap. You just alluded to this right now with the sickle cell piece, but also I'm thinking about some of the things you just shared related to like representation and how important that is. And can you share a little bit about that? It sounds like you had an amazing mentor who really inspired you to see yourself in new roles. Can you share more about how that developed and how you pass it on? There's times in my life that I wanted to be seen. And then there's times in my life where I didn't care to be seen at all. Like I just wanted to keep my head down and do what I was there to do. I met my mentor, Sharice, when I was in those moments where I just didn't care. I was working at the bedside. I was actually working for an organization that had an internal agency. So we deployed to the areas of need. And at this particular shift, it was night shift and it was in an ED overflow area. So there were no patients in this area. It was like a, I don't know, a cardiac cath unit that was completely like empty and they set me up there and they said, okay, we're going to send you ER patients. And so all throughout the night, I can't recall how many patients I must've had seven or eight patients by the end of the night by myself, having to set up all of the, the PIXA system that held the drugs, all of the call bell system, communication to the doctors, the charts, everything needed to be set up. And I was so used to just working with my head down and working in that agency mindset. I didn't think anything of it. Charisse was the administrator on call and was at home and wondering who the heck is working in that ED overflow unit. I know we don't have enough people. I'm going to go in the morning and find out and see just how much of a mess there is. And when she came in and she saw everything working, she was like, who are you? Where did you come from? I must know more. And so that's how we met. But what really worked was after she recognized that I really cared about what we were doing there, she spent the time to get to know me, spent the time to set up, time to mentor me, time to understand where my knowledge gaps were and expose me, frankly. And so when there was an opportunity to lead a unit, a cardiac step-down unit, uh, she tapped my shoulder and I didn't know a thing about leading. I didn't know how to open up emails. I really didn't know anything, but it was the confidence that she had in me knowing that what she had already experienced, that she felt confidence in endorsing me for that role. It's really great when you have those moments where you're not looking to be seen, but somebody sees you anyway. And for her, I think personally, she was looking to invest in someone that was coming up behind her. And I've cherished that in my heart. And I look intentionally to do that throughout my career. It's interesting because I think about that moment where they're like, okay, you're now leading the overflow unit. Here you go. Figure it out. Here's seven, eight patients. And I think about this sort of the old sort of adage that you can look at something new, like that little adjustment and the way that you took that on and how many doors that opened for you. Yeah, that's a great way to slow that down. Honestly, it wasn't a thought for me. Obviously, growing up in South Jersey, it's not, we weren't the most well off family. So 
just growing up, just appreciating what we had. I had a career, I have a job and I come from a family. My mom's from Jamaica. And so we always just, we had a lifestyle where we took good care of what we had and we appreciated what we had. So I carried that mindset into the work, just grateful that I'm able to work today and able to help this organization. And it's okay, I have to open up a unit. And I think you're right. There's a moment where you just go, okay, I wonder how this is going to turn out, or I wonder what I can learn from this. And thinking throughout the career that I've had, there's absolutely moment after moment where you're faced with that same sort of fork in the road. So true. Do I look at this like a burden? Like, why am I in this situation? I don't have the resources or I've never done this before. What am I supposed to do here? And start spiraling down that path. Or do you say, okay, you started with gratitude, which is, I think, a basic tenet in my life. And I believe that it's a major driver of people being able to do things above and beyond maybe what's imaginable. And I think about how you were like, okay, like I'm grateful for my, my opportunity to be here. I want to help this organization. Let's see what happens. I'm going to try it. Who knows? And then when Therese came in the next day, she's like, wow, things are not a mess here. This was really good. And Dwight, you're sitting there. I guess I figured it out. I don't know. That was the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I think you said it when we started this conversation, when you have that kind of mindset, doors do open because you're open to the possibilities. You're not caught in that whole mindset of what else is going to go wrong here. And I think it wires you in a certain way where opportunities come your way. And I don't know if I was really intentional about that throughout the rest of my journey, but it was just operating from that place of thankfulness, gratefulness. And I think it comes from the bottom up. Absolutely. When you look at current nursing workforce, healthcare workforce generally, how do we inspire more of that? My hat goes off to every single bedside nurse, clinician, PCA. It's been a really tough couple of years, three years, I guess. And I think it's a it's the right question to ask right now is in terms of how do we get people re-engaged to the work? And I think it goes back to the why. And it's old cliche, but it really is one of the most powerful things we can do. And I think the quickest way we can get to the why is find a way to talk to our patients, find a way to get our families to really engage with our workforce in a meaningful way. And I'll tell you a quick moment that mattered for me in that I was in nursing school and again, black male nurse. So in nursing, sometimes you just cluster to your friends and I didn't have that little cluster of friends. And so I was doing new things and trying to figure things out along the way. And I was really nervous and I was taking care of this one patient who had an NG tube, you know, the tube that goes into your stomach from your nose. And I'd never seen one before. And so I walked into the room, super nervous, brand new nurse, and I see liquid coming out. And I didn't know what my, I didn't know how to even like safely engage with them. And he said, he saw me. So this was a moment where I, I needed to be seen and he saw me. He saw the nervousness and he said, hey, it's okay. Here's the shutoff valve. This is what the nurse before you did. And like caught me, right? Because he had been living with this issue for a long time. And he actually taught me so much more than I would have ever learned anywhere else. And so I think those were the kinds of moments that planted seeds for me to now see the value of engaging people in a meaningful way to help us to connect back to what's really important about the work. And so on a day-to-day -day basis now, I seek opportunities to get our patients and our families to talk to our workforce about what it's like to receive care. And it's hard to argue. It's hard to say, I don't know if I can really do one extra thing when you've got a patient saying, this is the only thing that matters to me right now.
that you sit down and you just explain what you just said in a different way. It's hard to argue meeting somebody's needs when you know that if you just do this, everything else throughout the day I can put up with, but this one thing's really bothering me. It's a great question to ask, especially now, because we need inspiration more than ever. And we have inspiration all around us. It's just, are we willing to do the work of really engaging people in a meaningful way so that we can connect people back to the why of the work? I couldn't agree more. It's like, how do we set up more opportunities for people to get back in touch with their calling? Like why they went into this work, their fuel. And it, because I think we can only drain people so much. Like, I feel like we've really, like people have really put their entire selves on the line for so long, especially during COVID. And now like we have an opportunity, like how do we create an environment where people can get that fuel, hear from patients and families and listen. And I think about that moment that you just shared with the patient with NG tube. It's like, that was such a special, it's like a simple moment, but the patient was the one who's like, wow, don't worry. Like we're in this together kind of thing. And that's when you were able, I think to hopefully like feel, okay, like I can figure this out. I got this. I definitely think that our patients wield a very special power in a sense that we in healthcare are just coming to grips with. I think this is a very old idea to engage with patients and families in a meaningful way, but it means so much more now than ever. So that's one thing. But another thing is we have in leadership, we have a responsibility over the work environment. Who says this is totally out of our control? Okay, great. COVID is here. Yes, there are some new rules and new protocols, but that shouldn't dictate everything that we do and say. And a few years ago, I took part in a collaborative that was called Joy in the Workplace. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that or heard of people working on that, but the whole idea was how can we as leaders take more ownership over the atmosphere that we set. And there's this great book by Don Ream. It's called Thrive by Design. And it's all about how we are neurologically wired to have a need for belonging and a need for your tribe, right? And so this whole movement around joining the workplace was really about how can we take in the environment that we have and the tools and the skills that we have at our disposal and how can we create fun how can we gamify the work environment? How can we just do this differently? Who says we have to do it the traditional way? And great things came out of that. Obviously, the idea of play, having staff meetings that start with a game, end with a game, things like that. Simple things. But I think that's another way we can think about inspiring people in a time where inspiration is needed. I love that. I think about the tribe aspect that you shared. And you mentioned earlier, like when you started in nursing school, you felt you were maybe different. You're the only black male nurse in your class and how that does create sort of an energy. And it does put you in a different situation than others who may quickly go into some sort of tribalism, like clickiness, like friend group, like you were sharing. And I think about this in healthcare too, because a patient is like an outsider. And so we think about maybe potentially could be when a patient comes in, they're super vulnerable. They're new to an environment. They don't know how to navigate a system. And I'm curious about this in two ways. The first way I'm curious about is like, how can we help people overcome that so we can encourage more diversity? I think I'm going to take the topic about patients first, because uh, that's the most visceral reaction I have is that in COVID, what did we do, right? We said, okay, it's dangerous. You know, nobody in, nobody out, including loved ones, right? So what did we do? We separated our patients from their loved ones, the one tribe member that they had with them. And what did we see in the outcomes? All the outcomes got worse. Quality outcomes got worse. Experience outcomes got worse. Falls went up, right? Injuries occurred. And 
we learned a very valuable lesson through that. And so I think the first thing we need to think about in terms of like, how do we tap into that for our patients is how do we create more opportunities for our loved ones, support people to engage in a meaningful way, not just the patients, but what's happening, the entire patient journey, the story, how do we make it easy for family members to chime in along the way? And there's great tools, technologies out there, obviously proxy access to your portal and things like that. But how can we do that in an amazingly cool and engaging way for patient, family, cousin, loved one at whatever appropriate levels that our patients feel comfortable sharing? But that's really the fundamental need. I'm going through a health event and I probably shouldn't put this out on Facebook. So how can I find a better way to do this? So that's one thing. But I think to the earlier point about just the natural inclination we have to go to our tribes, I think we're on a journey in society, frankly. And more we talk about inclusive practice, diversity, equity, the more we are aware of our own natural tendencies, the more we get after that stuff. Because it's honest, we all have biases, right? We all have natural places we gravitate to. Our organization and many others have made a commitment to make sure we're aware of those tendencies and then leave us with the decision on how we want to move forward, but show people the value of inclusivity. Perfect example we have, and I won't share specific details, but we recognize that in healthcare, we take care of a lot of disabled patients, but we don't have many disabled uh, within our workforce with visible disabilities, right? I mean, to some extent, we have those invisible disabilities and many of us have them, but with physical disabilities, we just don't have a high percentage of workforce like that. And I learned just yesterday, actually, we hired somebody with a visible disability. And I just thought how powerful that was for us to understand what that employee's journey is like, what it's like to engage in work events and engage in work practice and what it's like to engage in our workspaces, having those limitations. And so I think those are the kinds of ways that we can get after it organizationally, obviously training about our biases, putting our money where our mouth is and bringing people in to help us in the communities we serve. You bring up a really good point because I feel like accessibility is something that we need to talk about more. And it really, it's way broader than I think we originally think about it when we think about like access to care. What does accessibility actually mean for people to feel like I am in need? I know I can go here. I can get care. I'm going to be able to enter the building in whatever physical means that I'm able. I know I'm going to be treated equally and fairly and compassionately. And then not only that, my community is then going to be able to support me as a result of whatever care I get, because it's that whole kind of concept of how do we allow for environments where people can seek care and get it in ways that they need? And how can we give it? I think we're all on that journey in healthcare. Frankly, we all need to do a better job. I would be first to admit that none of us have really arrived in that space, but there are some core sort of principles that we should be embracing. And I know Jefferson is and many others are, and it's the idea of trust, right? Well, we know that many of our patients have a form of PTSD, medical PTSD. They've had bad experiences. I have a member of PFAC and he often shares that he's had such bad experiences in just getting to the facility with a wheelchair, with some of his physical, that he chooses his medical care wisely. He chooses it carefully. He researches the facility. He sends people ahead of time to see what the path would be so he doesn't have to go through that. 
all of these are because of prior experiences. And some of those prior experiences aren't even with us, right? Some are in some other place somewhere and they're transferring all of those traumatic experiences to the current experience. And I do think some form of trauma-informed care where we recognize those lived traumas and we understand and appreciate the lens within which people see the world, that's definitely part of this access. And part of the tactic is how do we convey trust and compliance and competence in handling your health affairs? How can we leverage information ahead of time so that we can ease the burden of access and the whole concept of health resumes or health passports, packaging information in a way that's meaningful to you and your clinical team can take it and know about your light sensitivity, right? Noise sensitivities. What within the built environment do we need to be aware of before you come so that we can make your care experience less stressful and we can reduce suffering? Because that's really what this is all about. So I think you hit on it in terms of accessibility because we tend to just use a one-size-fits-all approach with healthcare. It's an old model that's dying away. I think patient expectations are absolutely changing and we need to change and we're probably 10 years behind the change. So, you know, the things we should be thinking about, how can we create flexible environments? How can we use furniture that changes configuration? How can we give agency to our patients to control light, to control sound? These are the things that we're obviously working on and exploring because we know that we can't anticipate all needs for all people. We can't use a one-size-fits-all. So it really is a shift in, in control so that our patients can take more agency over their environment. Definitely. And I also think about the family involvement in something like that. Like when a family is present, you just automatically have such a more sort of custom approach with the patient because there's somebody there that knows them really well. And whether it's family or a neighbor or whomever, it's like you have that person there and then, and they're, and they feel the trust because the patient's like, I know my person's here. I can feel good about this. Like I think about your PFAC member who's sending people to go to the facility on their behalf before and think about how that is so much work for that person and their extended family. But when a patient has that that's really helpful. How do we leverage that? And when they don't have it, what do we do? I think we have to think about the support person as an extension of our team and really create real roles and responsibilities. And there are models out there we're exploring as well, but having a real care partner, somebody that you know has a badge and responsibilities and can really help step in and guide the course of treatment and the clinical team prepared in a way to listen and take action on those care partners. I think that's absolutely a way, but you're right. How do we help someone that has no one? And maybe we need to be thinking about the roles that we have within healthcare. And maybe the Navigator program isn't just for complex patients who have multiple visits. Maybe the Health Navigator is somebody that can also flex into navigating for someone who simply just needs some help. I talked to a lot of patients and I was talking to a patient who received a really bad diagnosis in his care journey. And this is somebody who's competent, can make all of his decisions, is able to do everything he needs to do. But the moment he heard the word cancer, he became intellectually disabled. These are his words. And so he lost the ability to effectively navigate his own care in that moment. And we in, on the healthcare side should really be thoughtful, not only about sort of the support people might need if they show up with nobody or they have a support person, how do we work with them differently? What are the situations within healthcare that we know predictably 
you're going to need some support. And how can we adapt resources to those moments? That's really getting to the heart of person-centered care, you know, is anticipating needs in that way. So agree. And I do think that as we see more technology come into play and in more AI and more advanced ways of knowing people's preferences in what I feel is like 10 years down the road, not even that far away, we're going to be able to be so much more tailored to people's needs. And that's where we're going to have all the advances and all the amazing technology and care delivery that we have now, but it's going to be way beyond from a human experience perspective, that it's going to almost go back to way back in the day when there was a doctor that went to your family dinners and lived in the neighborhood and would walk over to your house with a briefcase. It's going to have that feeling where it's like, you know, people more deeply. That's my hope, at least. I think it's, I think it's an eventuality, honestly. I think that will eventually occur. And I also think in that state, do we need the same roles that we have today? Right. So should we be thinking today, what needs would our patients have if we had more support from AI? What new roles would emerge so that we can better serve our patients and their families? And there's a lot of automation coming, right? I wonder if my grandchildren will ever know how to drive a car, let alone stick shift, right? So there's going to be some real changes. And the more we can do today to dream about those and prepare in a meaningful way, I think that those are the right things for us to be focused on. And so when you think, Dwight, in your role right now, what are the big things that you are really passionate about right now that we can do? Not necessarily five, 10 years down the road, but like in this moment, in this juncture, which I think is, we're really in such a pivotal moment in our industry. What's coming is I'm hoping I'm talking to just healthcare, traditional healthcare parties here, because I think it's the traditional healthcare model that is at risk. That's top of mind. And our consumers are having healthcare experiences in non-traditional spaces, right? And your non-traditional players are your Walmarts and your CVSs and others. And they're just, they're they're going to be healthcare delivery mechanisms. They are now, and they're just going to get better at it. And those are the kinds of things that are top of mind. Healthcare entities have always been the local healthcare provider. Some of us, obviously, in, in academic spaces, we tend to be those places where people come to, but we've always had a local element to it. But I think some of these non-traditional players want to out-local the local, if you will. And so I think that's something we need to be thinking about is how do we create the same level of convenience that these non-traditional players are offering access and information and convenience, all of that packaged and bundled together nicely. I think healthcare has always been a few years behind those more consumer grade experiences. And so we've got to get really good at that. That's number one. Number two, I do think, and it talked a little bit about the topic we were talking about with the new models of roles that we're going to need. I think workforce is always going to be a concern. Will we have the same pipeline of clinicians? Will we have the same pipeline of our nurses, doctors, providers, will we have the same pipeline of frontline staff? Today, in today's market, you can get a frontline position at Target or some other place and probably be well off in terms of frontline positions within healthcare. So those are the kinds of things that we think about is how do we make healthcare competitive as a, as a recruitment entity and how do we maintain that workforce? It's not necessarily an easy place to, to work, right? Healthcare is dynamic. You're dealing with a lot of emotion, a lot of change as COVID and monkeypox and everything else, sort of whatever else is waiting for us. And how do we then maintain that workforce? So if I had a top three, it would be consumer-grade experiences and these non-traditional players 
How do we then get our workforce? Because honestly, right now it's tough. And then how do we keep our workforce here? Those are some of the things that are top of mind. All of that's layered over the fact that what worked yesterday will not work today in terms of meeting patients' expectations. And so everything we talked about moving toward a more person-centered model of care, all of that has to be working in that direction. Yes. And I think it goes back to what you were saying before, where it's like the individual moments that people experience with another person in a healthcare setting that drives trust are the most critical, but we have to set up for those moments to be successful as executive leaders in our industry. So like, how do we build the foundation for that so that those moments can live freely? Because you said earlier, the importance of the patient story, I could not agree more with that. And I'm thinking about the more we can build environments where those moments are just glimmers that can be accessed, that can be leaned on, that can fill you up on those really tough days, which we all have, that I think is what's going to keep people there because you're right. You could be just the same comp for doing certain types of work in an Amazon warehouse as you could doing certain things in healthcare. But what you're doing in healthcare at the end of the day is helping care for people regardless of what you do. You're part of healing. Part of it is understanding we as leaders have a responsibility over over the atmosphere, if you will. I think our workforce has, they have the best ideas. They have the best ideas, but they have no opportunity to unleash them. So I think where we can create space for our great idea makers, our idea generators to try new things, I think we have to be more willing to deviate from the status quo, the traditional And we should be thinking about intentionally disrupting the status quo to get to that higher level of performance and that better atmosphere that we're all, we all know we need. I don't think it's always up to the leader. I think we as leaders need to create space and trust our workforce to come up with some really great ways to enhance the atmosphere. There's an old book called The Wild Idea Club, but essentially that book talked about leaders taking a step back and creating these structured opportunities to brainstorm with the people that are in the environment. I think we need to do some of that now. And then we as leaders need to give ourselves some space on our busy calendars to also just brainstorm. It's hard to come by, but those are the things we should do. I love that. It's interesting because at Wambi, we play something called the dumb idea game. I love it because when you say it's going to be a dumb idea, you feel so much more confident being able to just say any wacky idea that you have with no limitations. And the best ideas that we have had have really come from that activity. And I think about that so closely. And I also go back to the origins of, of Wambi, my company, where it was like, we were in the very beta version in a hospital. We were like, does this work? Does this work? And the nurses were like, this is terrible. This was pretty good. This was awesome. And it was like, okay, tell us everything. Let's really listen to you because we have an idea, but you're the ones You're the ones that this really matters for. So we need to build something for you. So I think the innovation piece coming from people, like the people who are experiencing the challenge, they're the ones with the answers. I've heard this so many times that I am very hopeful that we're finding more ways of hearing from our most innovative team members. And there are, and I think all team members have ideas. It's like, we have to be able to give them the environment to share it and they should play the dumb idea game. So they don't feel embarrassed suggesting something that might be a little out of the box. How many times have you played the dumb idea game? And then somebody says, that's not a dumb idea. That's great. Single time, right? It's actually pretty funny. I would add that as we engage our our workforce around these dumb ideas, engage our patients too. And 
how great would it be to have everybody in the same room? And so that's the idea of what patient family advisory council should be. It should be this incubator of all of these wonderful ideas of workforce and our patients coming together and making magic happen. So well said. So well said. In closing, Dwight, can you share a moment where things really went right over the last couple of months? Like a moment where you were like, wow. I can tell you there's so many moments that go right, but we started a program here around recognition. We just want to, we got to get jump started with our culture. We just want to start recognizing people. And there's one moment that really stood out and it was actually a pretty sad moment. It was a young person who had a diagnosis, a pretty devastating diagnosis, and he was turning 20 the, the next day. And we were charging up the teams around, we got to make a difference. We got to just use anything we have to really go out of our way to, to make people feel special. And this team found out that it was this young man's birthday and they went out of their way. They all got t-shirts with his name on them. They got the big cake. They did the huge party. For that moment, he had totally forgotten about all of his problems. And it actually turns out that this young man's family works for another health system. And they were like, oh my God, that's, thank you so much. I can't believe that you did that for one of ours. That's just so encouraging that we're in this one big healthcare tribe together. And so we celebrated that through this recognition program. We celebrated the whole team this week, but it's sometimes you realize at some point people do listen. People do, despite all of the hard things we've had to do over the past three years, people inherently want to do the right thing. And they're just looking for those moments to do it. And I think we as leaders just need to give that little nudge here, figure out a way to recognize people, figure out a way to do something special. And it's great to see when they take you up on that. So that's one recent thing that happened this week. And it's a moment that I'm hoping we hear more about. And there's lots of things we can celebrate and recognize in healthcare. So I'm confident we will. Absolutely. And what a beautiful story too, because I'm sure it was so fulfilling for the caregivers to do that for him in addition to his experience. Like I'm sure that was such a mutually beneficial moment in time where they could just share and celebrate together. Cause I know I'm sure the caregivers were upset about his diagnosis as well. And so having that moment eases the burden. There's times in healthcare where we feel helpless and in that moment they had something they could do. And it goes back to what we were talking about with that fork in the road. We're all handed situations. Sometimes we just have to look at them a little bit differently and lean in and say, what good can come of this? Love that, Dwight. Dwight, was there anything else that you wanted to share today on Moments Move Us before I transition into our last part of our conversation today? I'm just really excited about where we are in healthcare. We're emerging from this last three years. Everything has changed. Everything is like a new normal now. We're in a design moment. We're in a design moment. So I just excited about leaders and experience and our partners because we've we can work together creatively to redefine the healthcare experience. We're forced into it, right? We've got all these other competing forces. We have no choice. We have literally no choice. But so let's lean into this and say, wow, what good can come of it? So I'm really charged up, excited about leading an experience and finding great partners along the way to help us lead through and uh, think through our challenges and look at them and say, what good can come of it? Because I do think in five, 10 years, the healthcare we have today, it's just going to look so radically different. We're not even going to remember what this version was. So that's what I'm excited for. Here, here. 
All right. And now we're going into our two minute speed round of questions where our listeners can learn a little bit more about you, Dwight, behind the tie. So I'm going to first kick it off with an opener. So Dwight, what would you be doing if you weren't in this role? Oh man, I would be probably a therapeutic drummer. I went to a drum, I went to a conference where they did a drum session, right? As a breakout session. And I was like, I should be doing this for a living. <laughs> Tell me more. What is therapeutic drumming? And I think this is the first I'm hearing about it. You get like a bunch of people in a circle. Everybody gets a drum. You have a main person that leads it like a call and response. So they play a beat, you repeat the beat, and then there's different things you do. But you would be so totally amazed by how good you feel after 10 minutes of just beating on a drum rhythmically in a group, right? Your tribe. There is something about it that just changes you. So I would be a therapeutic drummer if I wasn't doing this and don't tell anyone. <laughs> it's too late for that. <laughs> I love that. Wow. That, I'm going to have to look into that. I might have to get into some therapeutic drumming myself. I need to try that out. Oh, definitely. I highly recommend it. Okay. That sounds good. Keep me posted. If there are any Philly drum circles. Next question. What superpower would you choose and why? I'm such a high on the altruism and I'm also high on adjusting, which means I want to help and I deal with a lot of problems. So I don't always break a sweat. And so if I had a superpower, I would love to know how somebody else is feeling. I don't need to know what you're thinking, but I just want to know how you're feeling, right? Because I'm really wanting to help. And I know we got a problem here and I just want to know if what I'm doing is helping. So I think that's something I would love to carry with me. I think some people do it really well naturally. To some degree I do, but I just want to amp that up because there's so many people that are hurting out there right now. Yes. What is your dream vacation? Okay, so I'm therapeutic drumming and- oh, So that's part of the vacation. Dream vacation for me. We didn't get into this. I have a daughter with special needs and it's really tough to go anywhere because it's always complex, right? Well, you got to like, just like my one PFAC member who has to go ahead of time, like we go ahead of time and figure things out. But I love the idea that we would be on vacation together as a family and we would be obviously on a beach and getting a lot of sun and all inclusive. So we're eating as much as we want and all that stuff. But I think about the getting there and going home and just everything being just so seamlessly easy. You don't need a vacation after the vacation. Like how cool, that, how cool would that be? So my dream vacation would be to actually go on vacation, enjoy it and not bear the wounds of having gone the 300 emails you come back to and all that. Maybe that's a low bar because I'm sure you've probably gotten some pretty fantastic results. So I'm a bit of a minimalist on that. Let's go there, have fun and come back and not be traumatized by the journey. That's not a low bar. That sounds incredible. I'm with you on that. All right. And final question. What are you listening to these days? A lot of podcasts right now. I listen to a lot of NPR and all the boring stuff, but there's pretty cool. I'm listening and I just told you about Thrive by Design, which is one of the books I just finished reading, but I'm a bit of a leadership nerd. And so I do listen to a lot of John Maxwell. He's got a pretty cool podcast. They've been going at it for a number of years and I always find a nugget in there that I just want to try out. Right now I'm listening to John Maxwell podcasts. I'm a big music fan and it's mostly in the Christian space. So I do like a group called Maverick City Music. And so they're a really cool group. 
And on the hip hop scene, as we just already talked about being from Philly, the roots is always in, in the rotation in there as well. All I can think about is just Questlove being a part of this therapeutic drumming session. I feel like it might come true. Let's do that. Let's do that. I'm sure he's in town. He's over in LA nowadays, but maybe we can get him back and do one. I feel like we'll pass this along to him and see if we can get another episode of moments move us like for real. We're going to get moved. <laughs> oh, love it. It's a literal interpretation. Thank you, Dwight, so much for being on the show. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for sharing so much with us and our listeners. Yeah, Rebecca, it's been a pleasure working with you. Thank you for having me. It's a great platform. Our work has so much more meaning when purpose is present. I'm Rebecca Corin. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, when you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.